Uh, If you're remaining with us, I'd encourage you to turn in God's Word to John chapter 15. I'm going to be reading uh, the latter half of John chapter 15, the first part of John chapter 16. Uh, If you've been with us, you'll know that this Lenten season, we've been looking at a passage in the Gospel of John uh, that is called the Upper Room Discourse. It's a section of Scripture that goes from John 13 all the way into John 17. And what it records for us is a bit of a lengthy conversation that Jesus had with his disciples uh, before his arrest and his crucifixion. It's a powerful conversation uh, that happened over a meal, and the conversation and the meal had all sorts of spiritual uh, significance. As I thought about that passage this week, I thought about um, just my own family and how our family tries to Uh, make a point to sit down for meals each night. Uh, But with, of course, with sports and commitments and all the things that we have going on, it isn't always easy to make that happen. And uh, admittedly, a lot of those meals are are rushed and uh, only last just a few minutes and don't carry a whole lot of significance. But I know every once in a while, uh, we have those moments where meals like that just slow down a little bit. And I personally uh, appreciate those moments. I appreciate that time. And I sit and reflect on how quickly my kids are growing up and uh, uh, how uh, even with the chaos that's going all around that these moments uh, won't last forever. And sometimes I even look into my kids' eyes over those meals and wonder what will their future be like? What is the path uh, that is like ahead of them? And I think that's a bit of what's going on in our passage this morning. Jesus is sort of slowing things down right before the chaos is about to ensue. He's enjoying this moment with his disciples. He's telling them important things, things he wants them to remember just before the chaos is about to ensue. And one of the things you'll realize is that most of what Jesus talks about is love, but that's not all that he talks about. In fact, our passage this morning talks about something that's quite different than that and is, was, was very sobering for Jesus' disciples as they no doubt heard Jesus say these things. So I'm going to be reading from John chapter 15, uh, 15 verse 18 to 16 verse 4, at least the first half of verse 4. So you can follow along in your copy of God's Word or on the screens or in the bulletin. This is God's Word. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, you will all, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. 
But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering sacrifice to God. And they, they, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you will remember that I told them to you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, just so thankful for the gift of worship this morning, Lord, for, for the beauty that we get to sing together, to remind our hearts that, that everything we have is from your hand, including the breath that we take each moment. Father, thank you so much that you visit us with your presence in worship, and we pray that you would visit us now uniquely as we look at your word, these sobering truths that we just read. Help us to see the significance of them in terms of the gospel, the significance of them in terms of our own life and what it means to follow you. So, Spirit, we invite your presence as we reflect on your word now. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I think we all know of people who we would call uh, sort of polarizing figures. We all can probably think of a few people that come to mind that are polarizing figures, people we know. And that means you either love them or you hate them. And there just seems to be no middle ground when it comes to folks like this. Now, when it comes to Jesus, I think sometimes we have a pretty inaccurate picture of Jesus that we've probably inherited from broader evangelicalism or the history of the church. And because of that, I think we often consider Jesus as what some people have called a, a buddy Jesus. Uh, they've used that term before. And what that means is that Jesus is a great friend uh, who's really nice and who's really kind. He's always very affirming and he's always very encouraging. And and Jesus just exists to sort of give you and I a rubber stamp on our own wishes and our own desires. And of course, at point, Jesus can be all of those things for us. But if we look at the scriptures, we see that Jesus is so much more than just that. In fact, what we see is that Jesus was actually a very polarizing figure. People either really loved him or people really hated him, but everybody had to make their choice. Interestingly enough, if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus uh, was loved, but it was the sinners, it was the outcast, the marginalized, the unclean, the reprobate. These were the folks that loved Jesus. They hung on every word that came out of his mouth. They wanted to only be around Jesus all the time. But of course, there were others. There was, interestingly enough, it was the religious, it was the prideful, it was those who were powerful, it was those who believed that they had it all together with their own lives. These were the folks that actually hated Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with him whatsoever. And I think that's actually what Jesus is referring to in this passage. He says to his disciples, if they hated me, then they will hate you too. And I think both of those are important reminders for us this morning, because the first thing that we see out of that, 
The first thing that Jesus wants to make clear here, something that we often forget, is that Jesus was hated. He was hated by many in his day. Verse 22 says this, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is speaking, I think, very clearly here. He willingly acknowledged to his disciples and to those that were around him that there were a certain amount of people out there that really hated him. They not only wanted nothing to do with him, they hated him with every ounce of their being. And this wasn't anything new to Jesus. Think all the way back to Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's invited into the synagogue in his own hometown of Nazareth. He's invited to read from the prophet Isaiah, and so Jesus stands up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He sits down and it says that everybody in the synagogue had their eyes on Jesus in that moment, and Jesus seizes the opportunity to say that these words from the prophet Isaiah, they have now been fulfilled in their midst, that Jesus was the true meaning of Isaiah's prophecy. Now listen to the reaction of everybody that heard what Jesus said that day. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of their town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This was at the beginning at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and already people are trying to kill him. Think to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' disciples, they're they're picking grain on the Sabbath, which of course in Jesus' day was a no-no. And then later on, Jesus uh, heals a man whose arm had withered away, and all that are watching it, in particular the religious crowd who are watching this, they are furious with Jesus' disciples, and in turn, they are furious with Jesus. They question Jesus, how could you allow this to happen? And Jesus says to them that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What was their reaction? Matthew 12, verse 13. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Or even think to the, probably perhaps one of Jesus' greatest miracle, which was the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus multiplies just a few loaves of bread and a little bit of fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. Most people think it was probably more than just 5,000. And so this is the height of Jesus' ministry in terms of crowd size and popularity. And then in John chapter 6, it says, Jesus began to teach really hard things. And one by one, the crowd disappears. They go from thousands upon thousands of people to just a few people. Now, all those people that left Jesus, maybe or they did or they didn't hate Jesus, but they certainly did not like what he had to say. And so thousands of people walked away from Jesus. 
Now, what is it that made Jesus so polarizing? What made some people love him and other people hate him so much? Well, I think our passage tells us. It says Jesus was not afraid to talk about sin. It's essentially what the beginning of this passage is. Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about sin. In fact, he was very open that he came to convict the world about sin. And he, made, he minced no words in helping everyone understand that each person bears a certain measure of guilt that is due to their own sin. See, a lot of people want to think about Jesus as a, a revolutionary, uh, both in his day and our day. And they look up to Jesus as a revolutionary, that Jesus came to uh, come and overturn the political systems of this world and to, to unseat the systems of impression and injustice that exist in our world. And that perhaps is a part of Jesus' ministry, but Jesus first and foremost came to overturn the corruption, not out there, but in here. He came to overturn the corruption of our own hearts. He came to unseat the systems and oppression of sin that exist in our own hearts. You see, it's easy for all of us to say that the problems, they exist outside of us. They're out there. It's another thing to acknowledge that those problems exist in our own hearts. And that's what Jesus came to say, that first and foremost, we need to address the problems in our own heart. And a lot of people especially the religious of Jesus' day, a lot of people did not like hearing that very truth. And they hated Jesus for it. In the end, they even had him crucified because of it. And so make no mistake, Jesus was hated. But Jesus takes this a step further as he's sitting there with his disciples. He drops sort of another bomb in the lap of his disciples in verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecute me, then they will also persecute you. Jesus tells his followers, guess what, guys? You are going to be hated as well. They're going to hate you, too. Now, we don't know fully um, everything that happened to Jesus' disciples and Jesus' followers, but we can piece together a lot from outside historical record, and we know that much of this came true. And I can only imagine that as Jesus is looking across at the table that evening with his disciples, he no doubt saw the future that each man, each one of these men would face, that each one of these men would suffer. He probably looked very deeply into Thomas's eyes, knowing that later Thomas would be pierced with spears all at once from four different soldiers. He knew that Simon, sitting at the table there with him, would be killed for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god in Persia. He no doubt looked at Matthew, knowing that Matthew would be stabbed to death because he took the gospel to Ethiopia. He no doubt looked at Andrew and Peter and knew that they would be crucified just as he would be. So just about every one of those followers sitting at that table with Jesus that night would die the death 
of a martyr. They would be hated for following Jesus. In fact, what we know is that for the next 300 years, Christians would suffer all sorts of persecution. Christians would be fed to lions. They would be burned at the stake. They'd be paraded into the Colosseum. Their death would be used as entertainment for all people to see. Christians would be stoned to death. They would be crucified. If they refused to burn incense to Caesar, they would be hunted down and executed by Roman authorities. They would be hated and killed by Jews and by Romans. They would be hated and killed by pagan Gentiles all throughout the world. And some, even in the process of killing them, would think that they would be honoring God in doing so. That's the Apostle Saul, Paul's story when he was Saul. You see, Jesus knew all this. He knew all this as he was sitting at the table looking deeply into the eyes of his followers. And so he wanted them to remember, to not be surprised when all this comes to fruition for them. He wants them to remember that in those moments that the helper is with them, they would not be alone as they suffered for Jesus. And so this passage really is all about hate. And anytime we come to passages like this, uh, the obvious question is, what about us? This obviously was true for Jesus' followers in Jesus' day, but what about us? What does this mean for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ today? Do Jesus' words here only apply to these disciples, or should you and I expect to be hated? Should you and I expect to suffer persecution for following Jesus? And I think Christians have really wrestled with that very question for centuries. You see, something really significant happened in the 300s, and I won't get deep into this church history lesson here, but something interesting happened in the 300s. That is the, uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire converts to Christianity And he makes the path uh, available for Christianity to eventually become legalized as the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. And so at that point, Christianity and the church became legalized and it became institutionalized. And so this really changed the way Christians were to relate to the world and the culture around them. And even now, friends, I don't have to tell you this, but even now we live in a context where you and I are relatively free to practice our faith. You and I, we don't have to live in fear that the state's going to come in and arrest or execute us for our faith. And so how do we reconcile the reality of this context that we live in right now with the words of 2 Timothy chapter 3 that say very plainly this, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, all, no matter what time you live in, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, guaranteed. So how do we reconcile our own context with the words of Jesus here, with the words of 2 Timothy chapter 3? I'm not sure I have all the answers to that question. But what I do think is we at least have to ask ourselves some hard questions when it comes to this reality. I think we have to ask ourselves whether or not we have settled 
for a picture of Jesus that is not truly reflective of the real Jesus? Do we see Jesus as someone who says hard things? Or do we see him only as someone who affirms and encourages and supports us? Do we see Jesus as the revolutionary that he is? Not the one we want him to be, but the revolutionary that he is. A revolutionary who comes to unseat and overturn our own hearts and our own lives. I think we have to ask ourselves, have we settled for not only a Jesus that is not a true Jesus, have we settled for a gospel that is not really a true gospel? Are we truthful about things like sin and the reality of sin and its consequences? Do we accept the reality of things like judgment and wrath and hell, all terms that are super unpopular in our culture today? Do we call sin, sin? Or do we simply call it missteps or inadequacies or acting out of our own insecurities? Do we affirm that people's biggest problem is not finances, it's not even health. Their biggest problem is the problem of sin, the problem of sin alone. Friends, I think this often is why the gospel lacks so much power in people's lives today. Because if the problem doesn't seem all that bad, then the solution doesn't seem all that great either. So have we settled for a gospel that is not the real gospel? Or finally, have we settled for a picture of God's kingdom that isn't accurate, that maybe is even watered down? You and I might not be burning incense to Caesar, but are we worshiping the gods of the culture that is around us? If our faith is perfectly in line with our political party or our cultural evaluation, then maybe we've aligned the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world that is around us. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we living for the values of this world or are we truly living for the values of God's kingdom? We have to wonder, maybe our witness, maybe the witness of the church has been so ineffective because we've so adapted to the world around us. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we should be wonderfully grateful that we do not live in a context where martyrdom is something we necessarily have to worry about. There are parts of our world today where people worry day in and day out about that very thing, but we ought to be grateful that we don't live in a context that is like that. But I think we also need to be willing to ask ourselves the hard questions. If I'm not facing any sort of opposition, if I'm not facing any sort of persecution for following Jesus with my life, then does that mean that maybe I've settled for a picture of Jesus that is not the real Jesus. Maybe I've settled for a gospel that is not the true gospel. Maybe I've settled for the kingdom of this world when I need to be living for the kingdom of God. One of the commentators, Longman, points out that really all Jesus is talking about here is persecution by association. If I really and truly associate with Jesus, then I should expect 
some hatred, and some persecution as a result. Jesus said all these things that evening, knowing that He Himself was about to be arrested, about to be beaten, about to be spit upon, about to be crucified. But He also knew that that suffering, as heinous and difficult as it was, that was right in front of Him, He knew that that suffering was not the final word. He knew that on the other side of it was glory. And so, friends, make no mistake, Jesus came to expose sin, but He also came to provide the solution for that sin. He made that solution possible through His suffering. And so, His path, make no mistake, His path is a path to suffering, but it is the only path to glory. Years ago, I even forget the author's name, years ago, and I forget most of the book, uh, but I remember the title of the book. And the author wrote this title. Uh, it was called Too Christian and Too Pagan. And his main thesis was Jesus came to make everybody uncomfortable. He came to make everybody uncomfortable. He was too religious for his pagan friends, and he seemed to be too pagan for his religious friends. And maybe he calls you and I to the same thing, to suffer a little bit in the now with an eye to the glory that is to come. Because only with an eye on that glory that is to come will we find strength to endure the hatred and the persecution in the now. Only with an eye to that glory will you and I even find the strength to love others even when we may be hated by them. What a beautiful picture that glory is to come for those who are found in Jesus. Let's pray.